0: Robin, the worship was so sweet this morning. Gifted team. You're very fortunate. I'm fortunate to be part of it. My wife and I uh, really enjoy coming and fellowshipping with the dear saints, you in particular, especially third service, by far the best of the three. We really enjoy coming here. I think it's about our sixth time to be invited and have the, the privilege, really, of serving with you. You're such a really a great church. Um, I think I have told, and, and this is honest, I'm not lying to you, I have told at least a half a dozen people within the past six, eight, ten months that as I have these blessed opportunities to go to various churches and minister, uh, I enjoy coming to surprise um, more than any. And that's true. I don't know why exactly, but just, I feel comfortable here. Becky feels, well, Becky kind of, me more. I'm really happy to be here. No, she's happy to be here too. You're just loving people and caring people, and you love the Lord. You you love the Word of God. You're obviously impacting this region. Uh, pastor Brett, Christina, so nice, and caring. They're always so pleasant to Becky and to me. So it's just one of those places that we enjoy being. Most of you, perhaps, I hope, uh, hope I made some sort of an impact in your life. Remember, I used to be the pastor at Calvary Chapel in Prescott, Prescott Valley, Arizona, and we had the privilege of doing that for about 30 years, 29 years, and then stepped down from that particular ministry and God had a sort of a second ministry for us and we've had the opportunity to go out and pastor a half a dozen different Calvary chapels around the country. Usually they're distressed. There's been some sort of a tragedy and a problem and so we would be called and and we would go there and, and take care of the church and help them find a new pastor. We haven't done that for a little while. Last time was 2015, but here we are today And God has something for each and every one of us, I'm sure. Why don't we open our Bibles then to 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you glance up at the screen, you'll notice we're going to be looking at verses 15, 16, 17, and 18. And I've given the message a title, Profitable and Loving Friends. Profitable and Loving Friends. The graphic behind it is spectacular. It's perfect. It's people holding one another up, coming together in unity and support of one another. Profitable and loving friends. I'd like to ask you to take a moment to pray and once again ask God to bring his word into our hearts so it really means something. Shall we pray? Here we are, Father, once again, gathered together as a family. You've touched our hearts already this morning. You've drawn us to your throne, and we've worshipped you and praised your wonderful name. And now, Lord, we continue there at your throne, at your feet, wanting God the Holy Spirit to teach us from the word, Dare we ask even a bit more than just to be taught. We ask that you would change us where needed
1: from the inside out. But your word,
0: which is fruitful, the word which never returns void, land like a, like a healthy seed in our fertile heart that it might grow strong and produce fruit for your kingdom, your honor, and your glory. Thank you, Lord, for all that you're going to do. And we say together, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. And everyone agreed by saying, amen. Well, this morning is going to be just ever so slightly different. We're going to read this morning about three not-so-famous men. If we were just in a casual conversation and I mentioned their names, you'd probably go, wow, who's he talking about? Second Timothy is the only place, at least that I know of, that these three men are mentioned. And so whatever there is to know about these three men, pretty much this is it. Now their names are tongue twisters for sure. Phygelus, Hermogenes, and Onesophorus, three men. The unique part of the story is that only one of these men is declared to be a good brother in Christ, a good Christian, a friend of Paul's. Paul becomes very emphatic in these few verses that Onesiphorus can be trusted as a faithful brother. He's an example of a faithful Christian brother. The other two, Phygelus and Hermogenes, no happy face there. Not so much. He's not happy with them. Now, the New Testament Hall of Fame, which we find in the book of Hebrews, has already been written, so it's unlikely that Onesiphorus is somehow going to get his name magically inserted on that page. Yet nevertheless, Onesiphorus is a type of Christian we would all want to know and be with and hope to have as a friend. And even more, it's my desire that when we're done talking about him this morning, that we'll all pray to be something like this man, Onesiphorus. Interesting name, Onesiphorus. Greek name. It means profitable. Or the profitable one. Very different from the other two, Phygelus and Hermogenes. Onesiphorus lives up to his namesake. Hermogenes and Phygelus, no good. They proved to be something less than a Christian brother, something less than a Christian friend. I don't dare say something less than a Christian. I have no way to judge that but they were certainly less than what a good Christian brother should be. Just four verses, 15 through 18. They tell an interesting story, but they also offer a very good lesson. Kind of repeating myself, but it's a story of abandonment on one hand and gritty faithfulness, friendship on the other hand. There's two stories in one, and they're diametrically opposed. They're as different as day and night. And obviously, Paul, who is writing this, inspired, remember, by the Holy Spirit, because all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, and correction, and instruction. So... That the man or woman of God might be thoroughly equipped unto every good work, inspired by God the Holy Spirit, he judges it a story, as short as it is, worth telling. And he's writing to his son in the faith, a young pastor by the name of Timothy, and he's exhorting Timothy. He's encouraging Timothy, I guess, in the first place, not to be like Hermogenes and. His friend, Phygeus, don't be like them. Be encouraging, be fearless, be faithful, even in the face of persecution and discrimination. So it's a lesson here that we can all learn because we're suffering those things even today. Not in America, not in Arizona necessarily are we suffering persecution but we are suffering discrimination are we not i guarantee you that we are so in principle paul is writing to timothy and he's saying remember phygelus and Hermogenes. don't be like them they were deserters they were unloving they were unfaithful brothers When I wrote to the Corinthian church, Paul would say, I wrote that sentence, bad company corrupts good morals. Don't be with men like that, Timothy. Instead, be like Onesiphorus, who refreshed me. Be sure to follow his example. Now, Paul starts the story in verse number 15. Let's look down at it. This you know, that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. He's very disappointed in them, inspired by God the Holy Spirit. There their names are forever, for eternity. They failed him. They failed God. And he's very troubled by it, hurt. And every one of us here has experienced that feeling. Maybe to a lesser degree. I don't know. Maybe to a greater degree. Friends. Supposed friends. Pretty much aborting our relationship in a time of need. Abandoning us. Leaving us in the lurch. It hurts, doesn't it? It's really bothering Paul. However hiding behind this particular text is the fact that Paul is a devoted lover of people. When you read through his letters, you get the distinct impression and the book of Acts, that he had the immense capacity for friendships. I remember one of his friends was a man named John Mark. Now John Mark and the Apostle Paul, they had quite a little gefuffle at one point in time in their ministry life together, but as the years went on, that was healed, and even though they had an altercation in the past, Mark, in the latter years of Paul's ministry, became a great helper to him. He said, he's helpful to me in the ministry. When I read the book of Acts, I'm always impressed by Silas. He accompanied Paul on his second missionary journey. They went all over the place. Boy, was he loyal. Was he a dear friend? And then there was Epaphroditus from the Philippian church. He was one of the few who came to see Paul in Rome the first time Paul was arrested. Clearly, he loved Paul, and Paul loved him, and they were close. When you read through the Ephesian letter, Paul mentions a fellow named Tychicus. And he refers to him as, I quote, a dear brother or dearest brother would be the most accurate translation. There was Tertius and Amplius, quote, whom I love in the Lord. And Barnabas. I just like Barnabas. Who could forget Barnabas? The son of encouragement. I don't know where Paul's ministry would have been were it not for Barnabas, who actually kind of stood up for him and spoke for him and introduced him to Peter, James, and and John, and the others in the Jerusalem church. And of course, there was Luke, who was always there with him, keeping a diary of all the things that were happening. And then there was young Timothy and young Titus. All that, when you read through the New Testament and more, tells us that Paul had a capacity for friendships. He had many close friends, many close brothers and sisters in Christ. It's important to remember because sometimes people get the wrong impression of the Apostle Paul. Sort of that he lived in an ivory tower of of spiritual intellectualism, you know, highly educated man, which he was with little time for people, but that's just not true. Paul, just like his master Jesus, was all about people. I've learned from experience that sanctified, maturing, developing Christians are always all about people. That's the only way you can really, quote, succeed, end of quote, in the church is to be all about people. In Your Christian life, you have to be about people. You can't be an isolationist. You can't pull back, shut the blinds, close the door turn on the TV and call it a day. That's not what Christians are called to do. You know, we're filled with God's Holy Spirit. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. And the fruit of that spirit is love. Love others. So love is just part of our DNA. That's who we're supposed to be. It's frankly just expected of us. You know, the book of Romans is pretty high
1: and and lofty, for sure.
0: It's the thesis of Christianity. But if you read in his closing comments to the Roman church, in that letter, he mentions 33 different people, people he knew about and loved. And 24 of those people that he mentions live in the city of Rome and that's impressive since when Paul wrote that letter to the Roman church he had not yet visited yet he had heard about them and he knew about them and he was praying about them clearly Paul had a big well he had a large heart for others when he wrote to the Galatian church he penned these words Bear one another's burdens. And how many times did he say one another in his writings? But bear one another's burdens. Listen to this now. And so fulfill the law of Christ. Significant. And when he writes about different people that he was friends with in his ministry and his travels, he seems to know where each one of these people are geographically as well as spiritually. And how they're doing. And according to his letters. If you heap them all together. He rejoiced in those people. And he prayed for those people repeatedly. And when they were up. He was up. When they were down. He was grieved. So always remember the Apostle Paul. People. Relationships. Friendships. Were inherent in the heart of the Apostle Paul. And now, today, as we look at this passage of Scripture, a man named Onesiphorus is heavy on his heart, a fugitive slave, converted in Ephesus, served with Paul in Ephesus, and now, years later, had remained absolutely loyal to Paul. And as Paul writes this letter, he's lonely. He felt abandoned. And according to chapter number four, only Luke remained with him. There had been others, Titus, Timothy, Crescens. They were all good men, but they'd moved on to other ministries. Totally honorable, but they weren't there any longer. But then he mentions a man named Demas. And he says, Demas has forsaken me. That's a big word. Alexander the coppersmith later in this letter had done him, quote, much harm, end of quote. Much harm, not just harm, but much harm. So he's reminding Timothy or telling Timothy that he senses or feels like he's been deserted by a sizable number of people. The kind of people my father back in his day would have called Them as fair weather friends. Fair weather friends. Check out verse number 15 one more time. This you know that all those in Asia have turned away from me. All those in Asia. Now I don't want to contradict the Bible because I understand that every word is inspired. But I'm just wondering if in the literal sense all really means all. And it almost seems like it can't. Can't mean all in the most literal sense. But the defections were uh, quantitatively high and confounding. And so it felt like everyone had walked away from him. And I know exactly how he felt. Pastors all feel that way have a healthy, vibrant congregation like this one. I don't know. 1,800, 2,000 people show up. But 15 people begin to complain. And they form a little group. And they have this to say and that to say. And sooner or later, it filters back to the pastor. And it sounds like everybody is unhappy. Oftentimes, Someone will come up to a pastor and say, Pastor, uh, we've been talking and we think. What they really mean is the person I was talking to who was listening to me. I'm assuming they agree with me. We think. And we sounds like a number that could be ginormous, but it's probably just one or two. But because, like Paul, pastors are there to love people, help people, teach people, support people, care for people, marry people, bury people, do whatever they have to do to love people. When those complaints come in, it feels like a whole bunch of people are unhappy. And so for Paul, it seems as if the majority of Paul's one-time supporters had now forsaken him, like Demas had forsaken him. But in this little paragraph, he's especially hurt by Phygelus and Hermogenes. Their failure in their relationship was particularly painful to Paul. Why did they turn away? Maybe they were afraid. That's understandable. Afraid to be identified with Paul. Worrying that they would be persecuted. Worrying that they might even be arrested and separated from their families. It was especially hurtful to him for an obvious reason. They had been special to Paul. Perhaps he gave them special ministry. Maybe he tutored them, discipled them. He poured his heart out to these brothers. Maybe these brothers and their wives. All very possible. And so if that's true, and why wouldn't it be true, it's not hard to identify with his feelings of abandonment. There's nothing worse than when someone you believe to be a friend Associate, someone close to you, turns on you. Someone you love turns their back. And most of us in this room have experienced that at one time or another, either in ministry or family or maybe even in marriage. It's very painful. And Paul's being real here. Solomon, smartest man who ever lived, He wrote these words, a friend loves at all times. A friend loves at all times. A brother, meaning the same thing, a friend, is born for adversity. And clearly, these two men, Phygelus and Hermogenes, did not come up to that standard. I think they at one time had been close associates with
1: Paul, co-labored with him, church leaders. They showed
0: promise, personally discipled. In Paul's mind, they were the last ones that he would suspect of cowardice, betrayal, ingratitude, and rejection.
1: I never want to be counted as a man like that. Paul felt like he was waylaid.
0: Once side by side, they had turned from him, walked away from him. They were key players in a shameful and hurtful desertion. And no doubt, they spoke with others and drew others out with them.
1: Brothers and sisters, never, ever do that. It's sinful. Don't ever, ever do it. I understand things. I've been in the ministry a long time. If there's an issue, pray it through carefully. And go talk to the person that you need to talk to. Talking beyond the person that you need to talk to is sinful. Don't ever do it. It isn't godly. It's not wise. It's not clever. It's not anything but sinful. And it's painful. It's painful when it works its way back around and lands on the pastor's heart, or the servant's heart, or the worship leader's heart, or the associate pastor's heart, or a brother and sister's heart. Just don't do it. It's sinful. There's no other way to judge it. And it hurts. Paul was wounded. He thought they loved him. So it was very, very painful.
0: You know, I was thinking about that pain. You have to be in a true relationship with a person or with people in order for them to hurt you. Now, I know some of you, and I've been here before, and you've been very nice and polite to me and to my wife, and we enjoy coming here, but we're not necessarily intimately connected. (laughs) So if after church, and I'm trying to say goodbye to you, and you say something to me that's unkind, yeah, I'm not going to feel good. I'm going to get in the car, and I'm going to tell Becky, or she's going to tell me, or we're going to talk about it for a few hours, but... Probably by the time we get back up to Prescott or wake up tomorrow morning, we're going to go, well, whatever, why would they say that? It doesn't make any difference to me. However, if we have a close, intimate relationship and you're mean-spirited to me or you did something painful to me, it's going to deeply hurt. There's a difference. Hurt comes when you have known them and loved them and served alongside them and then they choose to hurt you. So the bottom line is, when you love people, it does make you vulnerable. When you love people, it does make you vulnerable. Whether you realize it or not, sure, I've been preaching for a long time, but I'm quite vulnerable up here. Am I not? So I'm sharing my heart, and I'm expounding the scriptures to you for you to embrace or reject. Here's some advice. If you don't want to get hurt ever, then don't give yourself to anyone. Anyone. Of course, as loving Christians, that's really not possible to do because of the DNA. And our command is to love all men everywhere. So being hurt is just part of the Christian life. It's painful. It's terrible. But in the long run, it isn't necessarily lethal. And if embraced properly, hurt, rejection like that will conform you into the image of Christ. What do you do with the pain of rejection or the pain of someone turning away from you when you're in great need? You embrace that pain and you pull it into your heart and you let it live in your heart for a bit. Paul wrote Philippians 3.10 and he said that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. That's a full sanctuary. That's a happy life. That's a big offering. That's people getting saved. That's evangelism all over the world. I want to know the power, the greatness of his resurrection. But I also want to know, Gnosko, and experience the fellowship of his suffering. What, Paul? You want to experience the cross? No, not really. I don't want to die on a cross. But I want to know and embrace the rejection. We beheld his glory, the only begotten of the father who came and loved, but was rejected, crucify him. I want to feel some of that rejection in my life from time to time, because according to Paul in Philippians 3.10, it will conform me into his image. And after all, isn't that what I want? Don't I want God to work in my life and make me more and more like Jesus? Well, if that's the case, then I'm going to have to hurt once in a while. I'm going to have to experience some rejection. But what I don't want to be is the one who institutes the pain. And so he says to Timothy, don't hang out with guys like this. And don't you ever be like one of them. And with regarding our personal relationship, Timothy, stand with me, suffer with me well, follow me as I follow Christ. And so he, he lays a pretty heavy chunk of lumber on those two men that betrayed him. But what's interesting is that Paul does not dwell, this is only a very short paragraph, he doesn't dwell on those men for long. Paul, I think, made a better decision. And there's a good lesson there, don't dwell on negative people very long. Negative people just tear you down. They just drag you down. They just pull you down. They just get you depressed and discouraged and grumpy. Don't dwell on them. Say a quick prayer for them. And be like Paul, who chooses to focus now on faithful Onesiphorus. Even though the others deserted him and hurt him, Onesiphorus, he remembers, was loyal for a long time, even to the end. And so he avoids dropping deeper into depression or despair or discouragement. And instead, he starts celebrating and applauding Onesiphorus. And Paul praises and remembers his dependability. He praises and rejoices in his noble character, which Paul attributes to the Lord. And he uses Onesiphorus to Timothy and anyone else who would read this letter as an example of faithfulness. Verse number 16. The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me, and he was not ashamed of my chains. He wasn't embarrassed to be seen with me. When he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously. Now you put two words together like that in a Greek sentence, very and zealously, and you've got a comic book kaboom moment. Those two words together mean he really was zealous. I mean, unbelievably zealous. Superman type of zeal. And he found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered me back in Ephesus. Proverbs 18, Solomon writes, A man who has friends must himself be friendly But there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That is Onesiphorus. John 15, Jesus declared when teaching his disciples, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. That too describes Onesiphorus. But the question facing us this morning and especially me since I'm standing here, does that describe me, me?
1: I'm gonna be honest, sometimes, absolutely. Other times, not so much. I'll turn the question
0: around if you'd like. Does that describe you? Not your husband, not your wife, not the fellow down the end of the aisle, but you,
1: faithfully,
0: zealously loving people, especially those, since there's no other place to look right at the moment, those at Calvary's surprise. Faithfully loving them, serving them, not conveniently, but faithfully. Seeing a need, stepping forward. Seeing a need and taking action. Paul was clearly moved here as he retold how Onesiphorus sought after him with zeal and how he ministered to Paul with mercy. My dear friends, everyone needs an Onesiphorus.
1: Pastor Brett, Christina, they need men and women with the heart of Onesiphorus. Everyone needs
0: an Onesiphorus. And the beautiful thing is, is that we're all called, according to the scripture, if we can apply this to our own lives, we're all called to be like Onesiphorus. That's why I said initially, we should all be praying that we would be like Onesiphorus. Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So the brother that hangs in there with you and he's there with you no matter what, he's there for you or she's there for you, anticipating needs, helping, serving, encouraging, that's wonderful. And that's what the church is to be all about. How special is that?
1: We all need it. I can't encourage you enough to do it.
0: Church history indicates that Onesiphorus was a deacon down at the Ephesian church. He'd probably ministered with Paul for years and years down in Ephesus, establishing the church. He'd known Paul a long time. But his love and his respect and his admiration and his faithfulness to the apostle Paul never waned. Let me tell you from experience that every pastor is grateful for those kinds of people. Every Christian should be grateful for those kinds of people. In a pastor's case, for those who assist him in the work of the Lord. And people remain faithful even during tough times. I'm not talking about supporting sin. I've seen Christians try to support pastors who were deep in sin. And it was futile. It was a waste of time. It was wrong. And then they became sinful because of it. I'm just talking about supporting a pastor, supporting the pastor's family, supporting one another in tough times. And every pastor experiences difficulties. I mean, we had a very successful church in Prescott. I mean, for the size of the community. I mean, it was enormously successful. But we had a stack of problems And if all the people who had left the church had stayed in the church, the church would have had about 10,000 people in it. You know, every church has their problems, but we remember those people who stood with us and helped us, had mercy for us.
1: And then in our travel sense at these various churches, we have found
0: people that had the heart of Anessa for us. We also run into people who had you know, the thoughts of a phygelist and a hermogenes as well. And that wasn't good. It wasn't, didn't make us happy, but I suppose God used it in our lives. But when those folks that were like an forest came by and began to lift us up, I can tell you, it was just wonderful. There's so many servants over the years, huh, Becky? Hundreds and hundreds of servants who served behind the scenes and supported the work of the ministry without hardly anybody knowing it. There were many, many other servants who served in the limelight and led all kinds of ministries and did so faithfully. To this day, we're just like Paul. We, we pray for them and we're grateful for them. We could not have had uh, any success at all were it not for those kinds of people. They were just merciful. I mean, I'm a long ways from being perfect. Becky's even, well, maybe even a longer way from being perfect than me. (laughs) Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Faithful friends, co-laborers, people that come alongside, write a note, give you a hug, say great job. What can I do to help? They're just the best. And they're Christian. And Pastor Brett, his wife, Christina, And never have too many of them. It's really impossible to talk about being a faithful Christian friend and not talk about the second greatest commandment. Man came to Jesus. He said, hey, what's the two greatest commandments? Jesus said, it's easy. First, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Second, and then he said, which is like unto the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. We all know that the word says that God's love, love from us to others, is so important that we can get lots of other things right, but it won't matter much if we don't get love right. We're to be known for our love. I feel the love here. Could I feel more? I don't know, I think so. But I feel the love here. Whatever you do, don't let it wane. Love one another. Love your brother. Love your neighbor as yourself. The Bible teaches us that one of the characteristics of the last days is that there will be more self-love
1: than ever. Even
0: Paul, writing to Timothy, says it. He says, mark this, pay attention. There will be terrible times in the last days, period. Next sentence. People will be lovers of themselves. And if that doesn't describe the culture of the West, I don't know what does. It's horrendous. It's overwhelming how selfish our world has become. We're not supposed to be like that. Our hearts are supposed to be open. Our doors are supposed to be open. Our hands are supposed to be extended. We're to be lovers of people, even to our own hurt, even denying ourselves to love other people's. But of course, putting others first kind of goes directly against our inclination to care about ourselves. And put ourselves above all others. But if we really want to reveal Christ in our world, the most powerful tool that we have is love. And it's not the kind of love that the world is accustomed to talking about. It's the kind demonstrated by Paul's friend, Anissa It's real McCoy love. (coughs) Pardon me. It really has been said, and I think it's true, that Christians are living epistles, living letters, written by God and read by men. People want to see if your faith is real. They want to see if your love is real. It has to be real. It has to be tangible. It's not a banner on a wall. Love, joy, peace oh how nice that banner is no it has to be in you and from you it's tangible it's touchable you can feel it experience that's what the church is supposed to be all about and one of the true marks of Christian love and Christian friendship is that you're there for someone even though you have a pretty good excuse not to be there but you still are there, you step up. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you sacrificially. Paul explains further to Timothy, and you know very well how many ways he, Onesiphorus, ministered to me at Ephesus. I have such great memories of all the things that he did for me back in Ephesus. So he, served Paul more than just once or twice,
1: but he served Paul in many ways. He's a great guy, great Christian brother. I hope I'm like him. I am like him to some degree, but I need to be conformed
0: and changed to be even more like him. Someone here might be tempted to say this morning, you know, but I don't have an anesophorus in my life. I don't have someone who, who would look after me or reach out to me or help me if I had a need. And I would say, well, I understand that. And I will I'll pray that God would bring you that person. But in the meantime, go out and become one because it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And if you want more caring, supportive, intimate kind of friends, then be one yourself. And don't be selective in who you love. And don't be selective in who you serve. And always remember that you cannot outgive God. You can try, but you can't. If you give to his children, he will respond in kind. He will bless you. Jesus was emphatic when he said, give and it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and overflowing. I think there's a basic need for each of us to have an Onesiphorus in our life. But there's also a basic need, it's in our DNA, that we become one too. And it's something the Lord would not want us to take lightly and it has a lot to do with agape love I understand and Onesiphorus seemed to understand this love and be yielded to let God work look at verse number 17 but when he arrived in Rome he sought me out again very zealously not just zealously but very zealously and he found me why is that significant because Onesiphorus had never been to Rome before He was from Ephesus. He didn't know his way around the city. And parts of the city had been burned by Nero's madness. And it was kind of dangerous to be a Christian. And locating Paul wasn't easy. Church historians, I don't know how they know this, but they claim that Paul was actually in prison, but hidden from other Christians. No one knew where he was. But
1: Onesiphorus, he searched. He looked hard,
0: and love drove him on. He knocked on doors, had dialogue, asked dangerous questions. Some Christians saying, Anesthephorus, just go home to Ephesus. You're not going to find Paul. Forget about it. You're going to cause us all a lot of grief if you keep doing this. Not all were as dedicated as Anesthephorus. Sometimes he'd knock on the door and I bet they, he'd just mention Paul and they'd slam the door in his face. But Onesiphorus would not give up. He would not stop asking. He would, he would not stop knocking. He would not stop looking simply because he would not stop loving. And imagine the joy that radiated in the eyes of Paul when Onesiphorus found him and Presented him with some comforting things and loved him and hugged him and prayed with him and said, I'm with you, man. And once he found Paul, it sounds like he kept coming back. You have to remember that to go and visit Paul once was probably pretty dangerous. To go back numerous times was, well, it's that much more dangerous. Yet, Onesiphorus did that. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. That was Christian love in action. And that's the kind of Christian love that the father sees and that Jesus recognizes. Our Lord told a story. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry and you gave me some food. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. Stranger, you took me in. Naked, you gave me some clothes. Sick, you visited me. In prison, you came to me. Then the righteous would answer and they'd say to him, well, wait a minute. When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you naked? When did we feed you? And King's reply or Christ's reply, the Lord's reply is, in that you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me.
1: God sees it all.
0: Certainly, Anethophorus could have manufactured a lot of excuses for staying away well, I have my own church here in Ephesus. I'm pretty busy with my own thing. I have a wife. I have kids. I got to teach a Bible study next week. I don't know. He could have found all kinds of reasons for staying in Ephesus, but he didn't. And the lesson there is simple and very direct. Don't manufacture reasons for not loving people. Don't manufacture reasons for not stepping up. That's not our job to manufacture reasons why we can't. Our responsibility as Christians is just to give it a try and do it. The love of Christ constrained this man. He was the cup of cool water that the apostle Paul needed. And he refreshed Paul's spirit. And he helped Paul hang in there through an unfair and difficult time when everyone else at least seemed to be abandoning him.
1: That's the mindset we need to have in the church today. Vanessa is a godly man. This all mirrors God just a little bit. I'd like to close by mentioning Psalm 23. The last verse, beautiful verse. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. The best translation is actually not the word follow
0: or another translation could be pursue. Surely goodness and mercy shall pursue me all the days of my life. He's singing about God's love pursuing him, pursuing, going after him. I remember when God was pursuing me. Any of you who are hunters in here, you understand the concept of Pursuing something. Sometimes back in, I watch that program, what is it? Below Zero. Those fellows up in Alaska, you know, women too, and they have to go out hunting to provide meat for the winter. They got to shoot a big 2,000 pound moose and then freeze the meat somehow by leaving it outside, basically. (laughs) But when you follow them as they're hunting and the camera's watching them, they're creeping, and they're crawling, and they're looking, and listening, and calculating, and thinking, and whispering, and drives Becky crazy when there's that whispering.
1: Everything to catch this prey.
0: Well, in essence, that's what Onesiphorus did. He pursued Paul. He was totally focused. I've got to find Paul. And when he found him, he just loved him. If you want to be valuable in God's kingdom, pursue people. Pursue others with a heart to love them. So often, especially as the church begins to grow, we look at our own lives and we say, I don't know what I'm doing that's significant in the kingdom of God. A few months ago, I spoke with a a servant. He was a great guy. And he was sharing his heart. And he said, I don't feel like I'm doing anything in the kingdom of God. I I I want to do more, and I couldn't disagree with him more. Not that he couldn't do more, but I had watched him for four months, and he had impacted family after family and life after life with little things, small things, just by loving them or helping them or moving them or fixing something. He was great in the kingdom of God, and the fruit that he was producing was tremendous. He just didn't see it. And it might be the same for you. You go, what am I doing? Well, just love people. On the surface, it might not look so big and important to you. I mean, you're not playing the piano and singing like an angel. I know that, but that can only go so far as as important as it is. We're not known for a great singer and a piano player, are we? We're known for our love. So all that to say, when the opportunity presents itself, I want to encourage you as a wonderful congregation, in a community that needs Christ, be like Onesiphorus. Hermogenes, Phygelus, forget about it. Have the heart of Onesiphorus. And your Father who sees what you do in secret
1: will reward you openly. Surely goodness
0: and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life. I remember when the Lord pursued me, pursued my dear wife.
1: Oh, my goodness. Just out of the blue, over a two-week period of time, started pursuing me until a Monday
0: night came along. And I said to my wife, Monday night, why are we going to church on a who goes to church on a Monday night? What?
1: Three hours later, I was born again.
0: Absolutely, completely, totally different man. Instantly. Everything was gone. Everything that was wicked and sinful.
1: And I had quite a bag full of it.
0: Most of my trouble started in the Marine Corps. And back in that day and age, were accentuated when I was in Vietnam. I brought them back with me, and they were ruining our marriage and ruining our life and hurting our children, hurting me, and they were offending God. Absolutely no doubt. And in a moment of time, As he pursued me for those two weeks with different people saying certain things to me. And then that night when he finally caught my heart, I was born again and everything changed.
1: Do you sense that God might be pursuing you? Probably is. Why am I here
0: today? felt it quiet in here. You must be listening to me. Or sleeping. (laughs) Wake up, O thou that sleepest. Do you need Jesus Christ in your life? You now I've talked to a few fellows here and there, and they say, well, I used to go to the Methodist church. I used to go to the Lutheran church, but now I'm at Calvary Chapel, and I'm sure all for the right reasons, but that's not necessarily the same thing as accepting Christ as your Savior and being born again. Jesus said, truly, truly, a man must be born again if he's going to see the kingdom of God so that the old things pass away and everything becomes new. And it has nothing to do with infant baptism. It has nothing to do with baptism when you're nine years old either. It has everything to do with what you believe in your heart. And if you believe that Jesus Christ is the very Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld His glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believed in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. You believe that, bring that into your heart, and amen, you are born again. That's what has to go into your heart. So... Have you believed that? Have you received Christ as your Savior? If you do, all of your sins lay at the foot of that cross, gone. His blood was everywhere that day, and his blood came down and washed away all those sins from your life. So you're a new creature in Christ. And when you receive that kind of love, it's so overwhelming. It made me cry for weeks. You know, Marines don't cry, but I cried. I was just so overwhelmed by the forgiveness of God that I wanted to love other people and that's the way Christians are and that's the way you can be if you'll receive Christ today. It changes you from the inside out. I know I don't need to tell you this, but listen carefully. Washington is not going to change and it's certainly not going to change you.
1: Only God can change you. Only the Holy Spirit can mold you and fasten you
0: into the creature that God wants you to be. If you'd like to receive Christ this morning, you just need to recognize that. Just recognize it. And then make a sincere effort to repent. Uh Uh-oh, I recognize there's issues here that I need to repent from. Of course, I can't really do a very good job at that. So I need God to help me. And with God's help, oh, now I can pull away. And then just open your heart and receive. So it's recognize, repent, and then receive the grace of God. His grace abounds for each one of you. So let's close our eyes and let's pray. And let's ask God to touch our lives. If you need Christ or you're a prodigal and you need to return To Jesus Christ, say this prayer with me. Father in heaven, speak it from your heart, in your heart to God. He knows your heart. Father in heaven, I come to you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ, Savior, and I want him to be Lord. And I believe that his sacrifice on the cross dealt with my sin. And this morning, I reconfirm, I believe in him. I come to you this morning for the very first time to tell you that I believe in you. And I believe not only you died on the cross and shed your blood, but you rose from the dead as well on that first Easter Sunday morning, on Resurrection Sunday, that you came out of the tomb.
1: And I accept you as my Savior and Lord.
0: Please lead me and guide me. And show me and show all of us in this room how we might love one another. And so fulfill the law of Christ.